for coming. Nice to see you. Because uh, it's been a while coming. Keep forgetting about me. Well, <laughs> no, I look forward to him. Enjoy the chat. Yeah, me too. I think uh, I've always found you very interesting. You you um, are a developer, and you've been doing so much in the development industry for so long. And uh, you're very outspoken. I'm, I'm so interested to hear what you have to say about a lot of things. But I also have this sneaking suspicion. There's something about you that just gives me like a hippie vibe. And I wonder if you were, it's sort of a bit of a paradox, but are you, were you ever a hippie back in the day? If you go on Twitter and look at my Twitter. I think that's why I think that. That's right. That is, that's you. That, that's, it, that actually is me. 19. In, in another life. When I joined, I joined CMHC in 1972, and I moved into a complex called Pestalozzi College, which was one of the experimental co-ops that Trudeau. Oh yeah, there's had the imagery created. there. <laughs> yeah, that is why I think that I just. Well, uh, that is me, and I was working for CMHC at that time. I was actually uh, looking after the social housing programs, and so. When you say I'm a developer, if you speak to developers, they would say Geller's not a developer. Not a real developer. The only people who think I'm a developer are the planners yeah. or the neighborhoods that are opposing the work uh, I'm doing. Yeah. So the real developers, the ones that would say that you're not part of the club, is it because you have, um, you're such a socially sort of engaged person and that you are adjunct professor at SFU, in the Center for Sustainable Development, School Resource and Environmental Management, Faculty and Environment. I mean, it's all very sort of environmental resource and, you know, hippie-ish sounding. My background is uh, I was an architect. I studied architecture. So while a lot of people come into the development uh, community with a background in finance or in the old days, they were developers because they were furriers. <laughs> but they did development on the side, and that's really what, how I, I got into it. Who was a furrier? Well, I'm just trying to date myself. Yeah. I when actually, I grew up in the Jewish community, people, the common line was, Sydney, I haven't seen you since high school. What are you doing? He said, I'm a furrier. You're a furrier. So where are you building? <laughs> And it's this, this uh, parallel today with the Chinese community, the Persian community. A lot of people who are developers, you know, they're electrical engineers or their background is in something very, very different, uh -huh. but they're building. Yeah. And, uh, and so, but no, I was always interested in becoming a developer, um, but I, uh, I did it through architecture. Is that interesting? There is there, I mean, no one goes to university for real estate development. I mean, no one used to, maybe, I don't know, nowadays, maybe there is programs for it, but I remember, uh, I won't say who it is, but a really well-known developer in town. Um, I had a book with me on a trip we were on and it was a book on real estate development. And he's like, look at that. What's that? And I said, well, it's a book about real estate development. And, uh, he's like, you know, I've never read a book about real estate development ever. And he was doing massive volumes of, uh, development. Well, I can relate to that because in 1981, I left the federal government and joined a company in Vancouver called Nayrod Developments. And at the time, Nayrod was a, a player. And uh, I was hired uh, to lead, the first project was to lead the rezoning of 92 acres on the waterfront in Steveston. And uh, some of the guys came into my office 
to see if I would put together a pro forma on this sort of 10-year land development. And I had never looked at a pro forma in my life. I didn't know what it was. And so I announced to my boss that I wanted to take the Urban Land Economics program, which is a real estate development program at UBC. And he said, no. And I said, well, look, I don't mind, uh, you know, paying a portion of the fees if you, if necessary. No, he said, it's not that. I said, well, what is it? He said, well, it, it's kind of embarrassing for the company to have our vice president of development enrolled <laughs> in Urban Land 101. But the truth is, when NARA went into receivership in 1983, 40 years ago this year, the first thing I did was I applied to take the Urban Land Program because even though I'd had two years as vice president of NARAD, I didn't know an internal rate of return calculation from a potted plant. And I still don't really know how to do proper internal rates of return calculations, but that's not the aspect of the industry I'm interested in. What part are you interested in? I'm interested in conceiving projects, uh, taking them through the approval process, especially residential, designing suites, and marketing. Interestingly, I can remember vividly the day that Bob Rennie teamed up with Dan Ulander to set up what was effectively the first project marketing firm in Vancouver. And at the time, I was very envious because I'd often thought, coming from Toronto, where there was a bit more of a tradition of project marketing, that that was something I would really love to do. So that's why I've always had an interest in following you and George and and some of the few other, very small number of other competitors you have in this city. Yeah, there is very few at a certain level, but there's actually quite a few doing a lot of smaller projects and a lot of switched on realtor teams. It's, uh, it's not rocket science and they're able to hire the same uh, marketing or graphic design companies that we use and digital marketing agencies and stuff and put out some good stuff. But when you get to the bigger projects, um, the only boss or one of the, the, we often say that developers only have two bosses. One is equity. And the other one is debt and the equity and certainly the debt, the construction lender, the big banks, they are risk adverse people and they don't want to see a name attached to the pre-sales of a large project, a multi-tower mixed use project that isn't one of four mm -hmm. names that they recognize, you know, cause why would they, why take a flyer on, uh, you know, a new company that's untested, unproven that, that nobody's ever heard of in their office. If something doesn't go right, they're going to look foolish and they're not into taking that risk. I have a client who's doing a development in West Vancouver and uh, they, I don't know if they've ever taken a project all the way through, through marketing. And it's a situation that's extremely challenging. And it got me thinking about my own personal experience in project marketing. And tomorrow I will send you something I put together for him on some of the stories, uh, how I personally got involved in marketing projects. Because most of my own developments, I marketed them myself and uh, oftentimes tried to do it in a way that was quite different. I mean, for example, I did a development targeted to Jewish seniors on Oak Street, and I looked at the, explored initially the idea of setting up a little storefront office near the site, ideally next door to the delicatessen. 
I couldn't find a space. And uh, Morris Wask of Wask Furniture and Wask was, had come as a financial partner. And Morris, I said, you know, I have an idea that for the market we're going after, the idea that people could actually come to the developer's office and see rolls of drawings might make them feel special. And so I think I can dress up my boardroom, make it like a little presentation center. We'll do it there. Well, the people will never get down to your office. They won't find it. I said, Morris, it won't be a problem. He said, it's not a problem. I'll send my car and driver. I said, Morris, if people are find a Cadillac coming to pick them up, they'll think our units are too expensive. We won't do that. What we'll do, I have an account with Yellow Cab. We'll just send cabs to pick them up, bring them down, and then they'll take them home by taxi. There was an interesting byproduct of that that I never contemplated. I was going to the airport one day and took a yellow cab, and the driver, when I gave him my credit card, said, Geller, are you the builder? I said, yes. He said, you know that Mrs. Moskowitz who was in the office yesterday? I think she'll be taking the two-bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> it has suddenly dawned on me. If I ever do another project, I'll just have one cab from yeah. Yellow Cab. They'll be part of the marketing team. <laughs> just report everything that people say on their way home, right? Whoever thinks that the taxi driver is listening to yeah. your conversation? Nobody. That's funny. Maybe nowadays be an Uber driver. It's, I have another quick one for what it's worth. One day my niece was staying with me and she wanted to ride downtown. And I said, I can take you downtown. She said, why are you going downtown on Saturday morning? I said, I'm teaching a course for the Urban Development Institute on project development and approvals. Well, what do you tell them? She asked. Well, I said, I give them some ideas how to work with communications consultants and how to work with the media and municipal authorities. And then I share with them a few tricks of the trade. Well, what do you mean by tricks of the trade? Well, I said, for instance, oftentimes you're a public hearing. There's a break in the proceedings. Whenever you go into the washroom, before you start talking about how it's going with your partners, check and make sure there's nobody sitting in the cubicles. <laughs> She said, I don't think you should tell them that. I said, well, why? What should I tell them? She said, you should tell them that if you're at a public hearing and there's a break in the proceedings, you should go into the washroom and go into one of the cubicles and lift your feet off the floor. <laughs> Julie, I said, that's brilliant. <laughs> so that's what I always do now. Yeah. Don't do this. I was in a, uh, I was on vacation recently. I was in a washroom and uh, someone was in one of the cubicles beside me doing their business, talking to somebody on speakerphone. <laughs> if you can believe it. I mean, like everybody's on their phone, you know, when they're in the washroom. I'm sorry. I think everybody knows that. It's weird to say, but it's pretty common. Um, having a phone conversation while you're doing stuff is really next level, but having it on speaker so that everybody can hear both sides of the conversation where your phone's going to pick up all of the ambient sounds, I thought was just frankly shocking. Don't do that. When I joined NARAD, not only did I not know how to do a pro forma, I'd never really learned how to negotiate. I mean, other than one's own intuitive sense. And uh, 
discovered that there was a fellow in Los Angeles, Robert Lesser was his name, who gave courses on negotiation. And my boss agreed that a couple of us should go and take a course with this fellow, which we did. And I'll mention it just because of something that you'll find interesting. I'll never forget in the morning, just before lunch, he said, normally this is a two-day course. I'm trying to do it in one day. So in order to help me this afternoon develop the program, I'd just like you to fill out some information similar to what you asked me to do. And it had questions like, what's your role in the company? Do you have a limit on your authority to enter into negotiations, financial contracts, and so forth? And uh, anyway, he said, I'm now picking up those forms a couple of minutes, and we're all rushing to fill them out to give to him. Anyway, he stood up. He said, now I'd like you to take those forms and crumple them up and throw them on the floor. This is the most important thing I can teach you today. Never give away information. <laughs> it's probably impactful. And in fact, it's, that was 40 years ago or 41 years ago I learned that. And I've often remembered because the nature is, I just signed a waiver with you. I, I readily give away information all the time, which probably does weaken my negotiating position on certain <laughs> transactions. We all do it. But it, it, it is an interesting lesson. And oftentimes, I think people who are very successful, they recognize that. They do. I was obsessed with negotiation, read many, many books about it, like uh, 10, 20 years ago. And uh that was definitely one of the things talked about, but I loved all aspects of it. You know, I was, I was fascinated by the yin and yang and the game of it and all of the different strategies and people's different opinions about different strategies, about withholding information, giving it what you give, when you give it, um, how, what the perception of that is, the set and setting of where it's happening, you know, everything. It's just a, like there's just almost limitless material about it. It's fascinating. And it pays dividends all the time. Anyway, I'm here, Cam, to give away information. I appreciate so that. Fire away. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me what you did in 2001 to win the Ethics in Action Award. Wow. That's interesting you would know that. I'm interested. You're the only person in Vancouver, other than the person who nominated me. <laughs> <laughs> it was Ching Ho. I had... Uh, I had been invited to submit my name for a new position at Simon Fraser University. And uh, they had for years talked about developing about 200 acres of land and adjacent to the campus on Burnaby Mountain. And I was eventually hired to become the president of what was then called the Burnaby Mountain Community Corporation. And... Uh, it was kind of an interesting role because it was a university developing land. Now, UBC had done something somewhat similar, and uh, I had been a consultant on that one as well. So, but we decided Burnaby Mountain was quite different than Point Grey. It had a lot more real estate challenges. And, uh, and so... Working actually with some creative people, David Hornblow of the Design Works uh, and others uh, decided to embark on creating a project that David, in fact, named University. 
And one day, Chiang Ho, who was a uh, involved with smart growth, today she's up at SI Whistler as the sustainability manager, somebody who was sort of the kind of person I admired, but uh, wasn't necessarily, uh, would be more of a strange bed. She actually nominated me for this award based somewhat on my track record. Um, I had developed a condominium in uh, Carisdale and uh, the, some, of the, uh, some of the residents, the strata actually were supportive of this <laughs> award, which I took some pride in because most developers were being sued by the stratas uh, of the projects that they'd recently completed. But I actually had had a pretty good relationship with this one. So it kind of came together, and I, I often joke with Ching about it, and she often said, I didn't really nominate you, Geller, based on your past performance, but I did it in the hope that if you did win, you wouldn't screw up as badly over the next few years while you're up at SFU. And in fact, I think she was very astute, because there's no doubt, I think, that if we do develop a reputation for something, whether it's creativity or honesty or straight dealing or whatever, I think most people try to live up to that uh, reputation. So anyway, I, it was uh, it was an honor. And uh, I mean, I must confess, we chatted before about being a developer. I mean, one of the most absurd things as I look back on my life isn't, I actually became president of UDI Pacific Region, and I'd never developed anything on my own. I'd worked for others, and I actually bought a property to develop it just because I didn't want to be embarrassed to become the incoming president of uh, UDI <laughs> and not having ever developed anything. And I ended up developing a high-rise in Point Grey. And one thing led to another, and I became president of UDI Canada, now, UDI Canada wasn't just the nice, gentle developers who operate in British Columbia. It was a lot of really hard-nosed, tough Jewish and Italian developers from Toronto and Montreal. And I was the president. And uh, I must say, that gave me an entirely different perspective of the industry. And, you know, conversations would go like this. Sydney, I, I can't believe you didn't get approval for the Rouge Hill project. He said, you're surprised. How surprised do you think I am? You wouldn't believe the price I gave the mayor on a condominium in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> and I still didn't get it approved. That was the kind of discussion that took place around the table. This, not that long ago. Yeah. And so there is a set of ethics associated with the development community. And if you, the sort, I mean, I like to think there actually are a lot of incredibly ethical people in the development community, especially now where a lot of the people who are in the community, they've studied urban land economics. They don't come from a tradition of real estate development. They've learned it as a profession, but it wasn't always, it wasn't always that way. And it still isn't that way. I mean, certainly, uh, even when I was at CMAC working with developers in Quebec, there was an entirely different set of ethics 
in terms of Quebec. And people would say to me, what are you talking about? I mean, also I'll give you an example. When you take a taxi in Vancouver and you get out of the cab and you ask for a receipt, they give you a receipt and they write airport 2200 41st, $31. I say, when you take a taxi in Montreal and you get out of the cab, the taxi driver gives you three blank receipts. You <laughs> fill them in yourself. That's normal. That's normal. Yeah, it's different there. I've heard in the construction industry too. If you want a building permit, you go into the mayor's office, you get a building permit. With an envelope? Now it's changing. It's changed now. And if, especially if anybody in Quebec is listening to this now, they'll say it's not like that anymore. But it was like that. It yeah. was certainly like that in 1979, 1980, when I was working on the redevelopment of the old port in Montreal and Quebec. They've worked all over. Kazakhstan, Russia. I mean, judging competitions yes. and things like that. What was that like? Have you seen the movie Borat? Yes. <laughs> Was it exactly? In fact, like whenever people, when I, when I first got invited to do a project in Astana, and uh, I was in the shower, and my wife said, "Come here, look at this. It looks like a really interesting place." I knew absolutely nothing about Astana, Kazakhstan, other than you're right. The image I had of Kazakhstan for Borat. After this, take a look at images of. Of Astana, the capital of Kazakhstan. They've now changed the name to Nur Sultan, but it'll still show up. And when you see it, you'll say, My God, this is unbelievable. Beautiful. And I got hired to, um, to be a juror on a competition to pick a planning team to prepare a new plan for Astana. Now, people would say, How in the world would you ever get that job? And I got it because I had previously been on a jury to pick a planning team to build a new financial center for Moscow. And I must confess, although I'm pretty full of myself, even I was impressed <laughs> to get invited to work for what, the largest bank in Russia, Sparebank, to be on this jury, one of five international jurors. And it was particularly special because my forefathers uh, were from, well, they were from Odessa and Lithuania. but. There, they'd all been run out of the, well, we called it Russia in those days, but it became the Ukraine, and God forbid it'll become Russia again. But it was kind of nice to be run out of the country at the end of the 19th century, and now to be sitting in the very fancy Kapitsky Hotel with a view of the Kremlin with a bucket of beautiful vodka, courtesy of the bank. <laughs> And when I met the chairman of the bank and I was introduced as a judge from Canada, he said, Jack Diamond is a friend of mine. And Jack Diamond was a very prominent architect in Toronto. And I knew why he knew the name Jack Diamond. Jack Diamond had designed the Four Seasons Opera House in Toronto and had been invited by Russia to come and finish off the Opera House in St. Petersburg, which had got into some significant trouble. Anyway, he said, when you see Mr. Diamond, pass on my regards. When I came back, in fact, I sent a note to Jack, told him this story, told him it was special to me as a Jew whose family being expelled from the country. And Jack said, Geller, I know exactly what you're saying. 
I feel exactly the same way when I sit in the SARS box in my opera house. I think of them killing my grandparents. So, you know, in life, it's kind of interesting how these things go around. But I love, I really love working in Russia. I mean, the people that I work with are as horrified with what's going on right now as we all are. And I'm still in touch with them. And I hopefully will go back and it'll be interesting to see what it's like. But in the meanwhile, I do continue uh, conversations with people in Kazakhstan and also Azerbaijan. And again, you know, people say, Azerbaijan, why would you ever just take a look at Baku and see what's going on in cities like that? There's some fabulous planning, fabulous development. And I really enjoy transferring ideas from one place to another. And boy, there's almost limitless potential for me to take the sweet layouts that you've helped develop in Surrey and take them to uh, Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan and Moscow because... Uh, there's lessons to transfer. By the way, there's also things that they do in housing in Russia that can be transferred here. And one of the ideas, since we're in the, talking about real estate marketing, one of the ideas in Russia is you don't have a living room, for a lot of people, you don't have a living room that's used in the daytime and a bedroom that's used at night. They think much more in terms of 24-hour use of the spaces in an apartment. And when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. And so I've been quite interested in designing one bedroom apartments where the living room, because perhaps it has a door on it and it's separated from the kitchen and the bathroom, it can become a sleeping room at night. Simple ideas, which, now I didn't get that from Russia. I actually got that from Pestalozzi College back in 1972 <laughs> when I lived there and the RCMP were investigating me apropos <laughs> whether, in response to your question, whether I was a hippie or not. But there's lots of, I, I think there's a lot that you can learn transferring ideas from one country to another. Totally. I've, I've, I think that's true definitely on the incoming. Um, Asia has been really influential. Hong Kong has been really influential in our industry here. And I've heard that our market here is a sort of a hotbed of hyperactivity of, of real estate development excellence and that there's many things done here that are normal that you can take to other markets that are uh, groundbreaking and highly, highly effective in other markets. I haven't experienced it personally because I've, I've only done our business here and in, in Eastern Canada. Um, I haven't done it internationally like you have, but I hear that's true. Well, you don't have to go too far. I mean... Presumably you're doing work or you're tempted to do work in Kelowna and in the interior. I mean, there's Vancouver Island. There's lots of opportunity. I mean, I used to be on the board of British Columbia Buildings Corporation. We would try to sell sites in downtown Victoria and nobody wanted them. Eventually concert properties led, by the way, by David Podmore, who I do consider one of the most ethical uh, and uh, spectacular developers in this city. And I think most people who've ever dealt with it would think that way too. But they were one of the few firms that had the vision to realize downtown Victoria is an excellent place to be building housing. And of course, today, those, those projects are doing very well. Totally. So what, what's working, what's not working in our industry? You know, what, what are the municipalities doing well and, you know, what are they not doing well? What could be better? I, I hear you uh, on Twitter calling people out, 
And I saw your 12 days of Christmas. <laughs> yeah. Well, I do think that notwithstanding the best of intentions, our approval process is really quite challenging. And I remember on election night, uh, the last two elections, I've been invited by CTV to go down, and I'm a very minor player compared to uh, Diane Watts and uh, George Affleck and some of the CTV anchors. But I come in every once in a while, I'll make some comments. But at the end of the show, Colleen Hardwick was being interviewed and was asked, did she think that Ken Sim and the new administration would be able to improve the approval process? And she said, no, she didn't think so. And then I was asked if I wished to comment on that. And I said, absolutely. I said, the approval process in Vancouver is so bad, it's impossible not to improve. It. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't get worse. It can't get worse. And it's not because people are being mean. It's just simply because things have got layered upon layered upon layered over time. And the process has just got too difficult and too complicated. And it's not just Vancouver. I mean, many other municipalities, especially when there's a lot of concern as to what the community might think, or there is a general anti-development sentiment, as there is in a number of municipalities. But even in the pro-development municipalities, it gets challenging. And so... For the 12 days of Christmas, I did throw out what I thought were 12 suggestions on how municipalities could improve their procedures. And uh, when I sent it out, a number of politicians did send me notes back saying, I just want you to know we agree and we're already doing something about it. So we'll see. Can we talk about it? Sure. Yeah, I'd love to. People don't, you're, you're so different. People don't do this kind of thing. I think you're truly unique. Um, you know, to go to all the trouble of, you know, what I'm looking at now and, and putting all these thoughts together in this, frankly, comical way. Do you remember what they are? Do you want me to read? No, I remember, I, I remember them. Um, I think I once worked for a gentleman who was the president of uh, CMHC and he'd been appointed by Trudeau. And he once told me, if you make a list of things, you should always make the, uh, the first list them in priority because oftentimes people look at the first few items, but then they'll drop, they'll lose interest. And I think there's some truth to that, but I also think that people look at the last thing as well. So I thought some of my best ideas were at the very beginning and the very end. Well, number one is make greater use of certified professionals. And at lunch today, I belong to a discussion group and I sat beside a former cabinet minister, minister of finance for the government of British Columbia. And he said to me, I've been following your 12 days of Christmas suggestions. And I want you to know that I was building, renovating my house during a strike in the city of Vancouver. And the only way we could keep going was if we agreed to hire a certified professional engineer. And we did. And I said, I hope it worked out. He said, it worked out fabulously. That's a very good suggestion and you should keep promoting it. The point being, why does the planner or the staff do everything? 
Why not say to the applicant, you hire these pre-qualified people along with your architects and engineers and let them review all your plans. And if they're in accordance with the building code or in accordance with the zoning bylaw, then let them sign off, let them take the responsibility. And if we followed that one idea, we could reduce all the staff involvement dramatically. Now, some staff might want to uh, not want to give up that power, power because they love the power. They love the power of being able to say, you know what? Your stairs don't quite conform with the building. <laughs> You're going to have to do them over again. But they're few and far between. Um, so right now, a couple of municipalities allow certified professionals. District of West Vancouver, and I hope you're listening, Mark Sager, Mayor Sager, you put in place appropriate procedures to allow certified professionals, I think three years ago. So far, not one project has gone through the approval process with a certified professional. And when I recommended to a client recently that we should hire a certified professional, I spoke to the CP, as they're called, and he said, you know, I'm not sure it'll be faster if you hire me. It might be slower because I'll be, you'll be the very first one. But anyway, there's, to my mind, that's, that's a very viable way where a lot of municipalities could, could really improve the process. There is, of course, a, a, an elephant in the room, and that's the unions. Because if we take away too much work from staff, the unions may have something to say. So I'll, then we should talk to the unions about it because ultimately the, the union members can't afford to live in municipalities in part because of the difficulties of the approval process. It does add a lot of cost. The, uh, what is a certified professional? So it's, uh, it's like, imagine an architect who's registered or an engineer is registered. A certified professional, they're generally what we call code consultants. They're people who know the building codes inside and out. They often know the codes better than many of the officials behind the counter at city halls, especially those who are young or newly appointed. And so there, uh, there, there are a number of firms code consulting firms who also provide that registered certified professional service. But I believe it can also be expanded so that you could use it for development permits as well. That the same sort of process where you say, yes, this does conform. The setbacks conform with the requirements of the zoning bylaw and so forth. You could speed things up dramatically. You want to say furthermore, why restrict CPEs to BPs? That's right. So in other words, Right now, it's one thing to allow them to do building permits. We could allow them to do all those houses that are going through Vancouver or little townhouse developments. If it's a development permit, in other words, you're not changing the zoning, then it can make sense to have them do that because right now it takes a long time just to get a development permit. Now, Ken Sim and his ABC and Vancouver have promised to dramatically speed up the process. And I suspect the, the way they would do that is by making greater use of third party professionals. Yeah. I wonder if it's a environment though, where, you know, they can radically innovate or if it has to be just incremental change. Well, I have to admit, 
And I did send a note to some of my friends who are running for council with Ken Sim. I'm not sure he should really be promising like three days <laughs> because we all know it sometimes takes three days just to get to the pile through the pile to find the application. So, you know, don't overpromise. But that said, there are ways to make some dramatic improvements. The, the other one, since you, you got it there, if you go to page 12, the last day of Christmas, that was the idea, which isn't my idea. The, the last one is the idea of creating a nexus lane for people who know what they're doing and have a proven track record. Just like there's a nexus lane at the Canada US border or in the airport. And I don't know, did you ever have a nexus card? I did. You had to, you hadn't proved that you were relatively honest or if you were dishonest, you were very good at hiding it. And, uh, but you knew that once you had a nexus card, if you ever did try to smuggle something in and you got caught, you really were in trouble. And I think we could do the same thing for those architects, those engineering firms, those developers who've got proven track records. And when I worked for CMAC, I mean, this is going back over 40 years. I remember coming to Vancouver and having to review applications by Arthur Erickson and Barry Downs and some of these very, very well-known architects. I mean, I was a 30-year-old Pisher, <laughs> to use a Yiddish word. And I quickly learned that there were some people who knew what they were doing, and it was inappropriate for me to try and uh, stop them or pay, play power trips. But there were others. Oftentimes, a nonprofit society had hired one of its members to be the architect. And they did drugstores. They didn't do housing for seniors. And I'll never forget an experience I had where I was really quite harsh on a set of plans. And the architect said to me, Mr. Geller, if you're, if you're so smart, why are you working for the government? <laughs> I remember saying, Mr. Fernadjeff, Look, I'm 27 years old and I'm reviewing all of the plans for all the housing. I think that's pretty smart. <laughs> and it's only because I am working for the government. And by the way, the one thing I do regret is that more people in the planning and development community don't have experience in both government and the private sector. And when I ran my own uh, development and consulting firm, I always hired people who had backgrounds in both government and uh, private sector, because you have to work for government at some point to fully appreciate the whole notion of public interest. I worked for government in university, part of my work term. And uh, I had two girls sitting behind me that were called special projects, which meant that they did absolutely nothing. <laughs> there was nothing to do. And the stories that were told of warehouses full of computers that were bought because if the budget wasn't spent, the budget would be reduced the following year. All that stuff was, uh, I just hated it so much. I just, I just knew that that's where I didn't want to work. It was a good learning experience that way. Let's look at another one of your ideas because I like those two so far. Uh, this one is called Rain in Design Review Committee Members. Yes. So any, anybody who's listening to us who's had to take a, you know, a larger project through a municipality knows 
They've had to encounter something either called the Urban Design Panel in Vancouver or the Design Review Committee, as it's often called in many municipalities. And oftentimes, the staff, they've, they've gone through a review process working with the staff, but at a certain point, the staff says, we now need to take your application to this committee. And I've served on these committees. I've twice served on Vancouver's Urban Design Panel. And I know that too often, members of these committees, especially the architects, are offering very strong personal opinions that tend to conflict with the advice that they've been getting from the staff or through the, the politicians, if it's a rezoning. And so it creates a problem because who, who do you listen to? And I know for a fact that oftentimes developers and architects will say, you know, They've said they don't support it and the application has to come back. And we think it's more important to appease some member of the design review committee who's very outspoken than it, the planner who we've been working with for the last year. So all I'm saying is we need to be more careful in monitoring the role. To be fair, some of them, they don't necessarily vote uh, to support or non-support, but eventually they do. And I think we could benefit a lot by monitoring and, and, and being a little bit, paying a bit more attention because I, I'm speaking from personal experience, both as somebody who sat on those panels, but also somebody who goes through them uh, fairly regularly. And it makes a difference. There's no doubt there are certain architects in this city, when they stand before the design review committee, I can tell you, I can tell you, they will not get much criticism from the members of the panel. Because of their cachet. Because of their cachet, their reputation, their... But there's a lot of people who aren't at that level. And when they're there, it becomes almost an opportunity for one of the architects on the panel to design a project that he wished he'd been hired to design. So there is a problem there, and I know it. And I have to be careful, although I'm no longer registered as an architect. I'm now a retired architect, <laughs> as you notice. But as an architect, you do have to be very sensitive about criticizing the work of other architects. You have to do it in a way that is, that is professional. But there's no doubt to my mind that members of design review committees and urban design panels often are overstepping what really is the boundary. Because, and if you don't believe me, just go and read the minutes or at least sit in on some of these meetings. They're public. And there you've got members talking about, well, you know, I really think you should think about the way you've designed the kitchen because that kitchen's quite small in relation to the dining room. I'm thinking, this is the urban design panel. He may be right, but that's not part of his mandate. What is their mandate? What's the point their of Their mandate is to provide independent advice on how well a project is fitting in with the criteria, the zoning criteria. And oftentimes, when it's well done, the planner will say, I would like your advice on whether or not you think the architect's decision to not have any windows on this wall uh, is a good idea or not. So they'll identify certain things that they'd like 
input from the panel on. And I think there is a role for that, but I think it's got to be reviewed because sometimes there's a big delay just getting to the design review committee because their agendas are so full when there's a lot of projects going through. And, and, and you know, we tend not to talk about it, but I thought I'll throw it out there. I'm sorry, I'm rambling on this and no, you interested. can edit this all out, but- uh, <laughs> No way, I'm interested. <laughs> Do you get paid to be on the panel? No, you don't get- You volunteer. Don't get paid. You get, sometimes you get invited to a volunteer appreciation dinner. Oh, wow. But, um, and then there are other panels too. I mean, Vancouver also has something called the Development Permit Board Advisory Panel. And I served on that for six years. And uh, that, that was kind of a special experience as well. So I think sometimes it is good to have some, I mean, especially when you get some very, very talented people, they can provide a level of advice that goes beyond the level of advice that some young planner can, can offer, especially on design matters. So I, I'm not saying get rid of design review committees or just watch and observe and, and, and think about it. It's a tough one though. I mean, you, you ask these community leaders to volunteer their time and then you're going to try to rein them in or curtail their opinions. I understand they're looking out for the community's interest to make sure the, the building not only conforms to codes, but is maybe visually appealing is complementary to the neighborhood. Uh, and sometimes they get right into the interiors even, which only affect the buyers, not so much the community and kitchen sizes and, and things like that. But, uh, yeah, that's a, it's a tough one. I can see how it can be a problem. It's a hard one to fix too. If they're doing what you just said, I think it's terrific. My concern is they want to design the project. Yeah, I've seen it. I've seen it myself. I like this one too. This one reads, improve public input procedures. Okay. It gets wild. So I, I, think, <laughs> I think I'm in a good position to talk about public hearings because uh, when I, uh, when I, wound up my company in 1999 to go to SFU, I actually sat down and tried to calculate how many nights of public hearing I had been uh, subjected to. And uh, one project, one project that I worked on went through 26 nights of public hearing, 26 Whoa. nights. And it was called the Spetafor Lands in Delta and today it's known as Southlands. There's new community being built there and very, very attractively by Century Group. But I do think that the whole public hearing process needs to be rethought because to be fair, both the developers and if I could call them the opposition or the community have become too strategic in terms of trying to torque the system to their benefit. And oftentimes I know how developers do it. You know, you bringing in people to speak in favor of a project who really have no right to speak in favor of that project. Um, and oftentimes they're employees of the company or employees of the, but you're just trying to get the numbers up. Meanwhile, the same thing is happening on the other side. I did a, I undertook a rezoning for a nine unit development in West Vancouver. And one of the wealthiest people in Canada, who I will not name, 
wrote a letter of opposition. And I said, I can't believe this. Why would he ever write a letter of opposition? And they said, because the person who was leading the opposition, the community opposition, the two of them were members of the same church. And so she invited him to write a letter in opposition. And uh, that happens. That's exactly what happens. Now, I'm not saying we should stop public hearings. I'm just saying we have to rethink how we do them. And also now in this age of video conferencing and technology, rethink how we solicit public input because there's all sorts... You know, we started off talking about giving away information. Well, many of us give away information all the time by filling out questionnaires online and so forth. I think that is a far more effective way, probably, rather than all the grandstanding that goes on. I mean, there's no doubt many of us behave quite differently when the cameras start rolling. It's just human nature. And when you know this public hearing is being videotaped, um, it brings out the best or the worst in some people. And I've been going through uh, public hearings in the district in North Vancouver. And I've got a lot of time for the, the mayor of North. And I watch him and I think it's unbelievable how he can sit there and listen to this absolute nonsense. Not once, not twice, but three times. Because... I've watched quite a few projects go through the process, and oftentimes it's the same four or five people who come out, object to every project, speak three times. It's nuts. And when I posted this online, somebody said, you know, there used to be a mayor of Richmond, Gil Blair, and at the beginning of every public hearing, he'd set out the rules. And he basically said, look, if you want to just repeat what the person said before you, just simply say, I agree with what they said and sit down. I don't want to hear it again. And he was absolutely adamant that he would not put up with it. But you go to most public hearings um, in most municipalities, not all, but most it's unbelievable the number of people who are there to repeat because there's this belief that if enough people speak in opposition enough times, that will influence the decision makers. And uh, it's, it's wrong. That's right. It's wrong. It's wrong. But I know, I've often told people, I think I could be more effective at stopping projects from being approved than getting my own projects approved because I've been through it often enough. I know what works. <laughs> what, is, what are some of the main themes of opposition of projects? I've heard traffic. They change over time. In fact, one of my lines that I don't know if I read it somewhere or if I made it up or I just dreamt it, but... Oftentimes, people camouflage their true intentions. So you'll hear people talking about the environmental impact of streams, but what they're really worried about is decreased property values. I think, I think a lot of people genuinely are still worried that a project will reduce the value of their property. If they live in a prestigious single-family neighborhood. Or, 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 so, or even in there. a town. I mean, it could be in an apartment, yeah. a neighborhood, and so forth. I think property values is a genuine concern. The other thing is, I think traffic and parking 
are concerns, but oftentimes I think they're legitimate concerns. I mean, I'm, I am personally increasingly concerned, although I've off argued for years that minimum parking standards should become maximum parking standards. You know, municipalities actually say you have to have two parking spaces for every townhouse or one and a half. And I've often thought, you know, these parking standards are excessive. They don't recognize that not everybody is going to have a car and so forth. Now, more recently, that people might have a car co-op or they might not have a car at all. But I do believe that we may be going a little too far by not allowing uh, or not requiring any parking for some developments. So I think parking is a legitimate thing. I don't know where you guys, where you all live. I hate that expression, you guys. But I know that my wife doesn't like it when someone is parking their car in front of our house. In her mind, <laughs> the space in front of our house on the public street is our space. And I think that a lot of people feel that way. And as we build more and more laneway houses without parking spaces and allow more and more secondary suites without parking in many single family neighborhoods, it's going to create a bit of a problem. And what might happen is what happens in Toronto in some very nice neighborhoods where people just start parking on the front lawn. <laughs> And you pave over the front lawn because there's nowhere else to park. So let's revisit this one in five years. But I would say that's a concern. Property values, are con there is in some certain circles a concern that if you get the, you know, poor people or renter, poor renters or social housing residents moving into a neighborhood, that's going to change the complexion of the neighborhood. Now, I have a comment on that. So I have a daughter. If you think I was ever a hippie, you should meet my daughter. Full hippie. <laughs> my daughter was really, she was the only girl at Crofton House who really didn't aspire to go to university. <laughs> but she had to go because her father insisted on it. <laughs> but she's always been out there ever since she was a young. And so, but... She was very much a counterculture, counter society. If she walked in now, you say, boy, she looks interesting. The reason I mention this, she lived around 12th and Main. And the city converted the Biltmore Hotel into a kind of shelter accommodation for the homeless. And she said, Dad, this neighborhood has changed so much. I don't want to live here anymore. Wow. And she moved. And, uh, and so there is a concern, I think, especially when you are dealing with people uh, who are drug addicted, uh, mentally ill. I think there is a legit, I mean, God, I'll regret saying this, but I think there is a legitimate concern on the part of a lot of people. But there are solutions. So I, I got a call from a lawyer a while ago, who wanted to see if I could help him and his neighbors stop one of the modular housing projects being built near their homes near Southeast Falls Creek in the Olympic Village. And I said, Bernie, absolutely not. The modular housing is my idea. I proposed it in 2008 during the election, and I, 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 I think it's a great idea. But I said, 
if you have concerns, then I think you should ask the city to set up a community advisory committee that regularly meets with city staff. And if there are the fears that you have materialized, then the city should have to address them. And I'm proud to say that there were some concerns, but I am told, and maybe they'll be listening to this, that the problems did not actually materialize the same way. The city of Vancouver did do a study. I think it was called New Neighbors. Uh, Dr. Ann McAfee, who was co-director of planning, led it, where she actually tried to do some post-occupancy evaluations. And, and I'm an advocate of this, and I even wrote a column in The Sun once about it. We should do more and more evaluations on projects that were controversial that get approved to see, did the fears that the public expressed that were documented at the public hearing, did they materialize? And I would say generally they don't, but occasionally they do. And, uh, and so I think the more we have evidence... Now, similarly, it's important to take a look at do some of these new developments impact property values? Because more often than not, they don't. Although there's no doubt that sometimes if you have a very large apartment building built in the backyard looking into a single family house, that will impact. In fact, I did one development, Cam, where our, we were seeking a rezoning and we really were going to impact the people who lived in a co-op across the street from this development. It was a parking lot where we were seeking approval to build some rental units on an existing rental site. But no one would have ever expected that there'd be a building going up one block away from Beach Avenue. And uh, I met with the co-op and I heard their concerns and they were absolutely right. And I went to my client, who was a very wealthy guy, and I said, you know, we should do something for them. Um, if we get approval. And they've mentioned to me that they were always talked about developing their rooftop into a, a lounge area and a proper landscaped area, but never had the money. I said, I th how about we give them money to develop at least to offset the, the negative impacts of the development? He said, sure. I went to the city and the director of planning said, absolutely not. We don't do that. So, I throw that out as a notion. If, in fact, there is a genuine negative impact of a development, should there be some form of compensation? I don't necessarily have the answer in terms of where does it begin, where does it end. There is no doubt that there is a public uh, acknowledgement that if you live on the second row and somebody wants to build on the first row and it's going to block your view, too bad. But I often think that maybe there could be a way of at least having more offsetting. Uh, now, we do do it to some degree, to the extent that if there's a new development, we improve the parks or we improve the play facilities. But unfortunately, unfortunately, now we are so focused on delivering affordable housing that the city, is, many of the municipalities are giving up on enforcing their park standards and their play space standards. And there aren't any real community benefits coming out of the project. And uh, so I, I think that's, 
That's a good story. When I did Bayshore, we had a big debate on whether we should build the front row first or the back row first. And uh, in the end, we decided to build the back to build the back row. And uh, I suggested to my client, you know what we should do? We should tell people that if they want to buy units in the front row, we'll be giving priority to those people who are already living in the community. <laughs> and we sold a few, quite a few units to people who had no intention of living in the units on Georgia Street forever, but bought in just so they'd have first dibs on the units in 1717 and 1777 Bayshore Drive. So, you know, you'd say, well, that's ridiculous. Well, helped to sell some units in the back row and uh, made for a lot of happy people. Yeah, it's a cool idea, actually. This one says reduce the number of rezonings. Yeah. We have a situation right now where oftentimes municipalities deliberately zone land in, inappropriately in order to encourage someone to rezone it because it's only if it's a rezoning they're allowed to ask for community money contributions. No way. No, for sure. Wow. For sure. So... All I'm saying is if the desire is to go, I'm not saying don't have community managed contributions. I'm saying do have them. They should be pre, uh, more, more predetermined, but do change the municipal act if that's what it takes. I mean, to give you an example, to give you an example, Camby Corridor. Anybody's driven down Camby Corridor seen literally dozens of new developments going up. The city did an overall plan for that over a course of a couple of years with a beautiful document with lots of illustrations of exactly what needs to be built. Every one of those projects was subsequently a rezoning and it had to go through a lengthy process. The form of development, the look of the building had to be approved by the city council. I don't think it ever turned one down. But every one of those projects went through a rezoning. It's absolutely nuts. And in part, it was because that's the CAC, the Community Amenity Contribution, could then be negotiated as one of the rezoning conditions. It's crazy. Other municipalities, same thing. E even now, I remember doing a, a, a little development and the letter said, I am voluntarily, even in Vancouver, it says the developer has volunteered to give $2.8 million in contribution, which will be used to enhance parks, bicycles, lanes, and childcare facilities in the neighborhood. Well, first of all, he isn't volunteering. He has no bloody choice or she has no bloody choice, but it's structured that way. So I'm saying just change the structure. I could bore you forever with my experiences of changing things that people said were impossible to change, but it can be done. I live on an island. We had to have a dike built around the island. We then had to have a diking authority. City of Vancouver, you know, to make sure the dike doesn't fall apart. City of Vancouver said, we'll do it, but we require a walkway along the top of the dike. Well, if we had a walkway along the top of the dike that was going to be a walkway past my backyard. I didn't want that. So went to North Fraser Harbor Commission. They said, look, we'll do it. In fact, it's our jurisdiction. It's an island in the water. I said, terrific. 
couple of weeks later, their lawyer said, I'm sorry, we can't be the Diking Authority. Our letters patent won't allow it. I said, well, we'll change your letters patent. Well, they said it'll require an act of parliament. Well, I used to work for the federal government. I used to get acts of parliament approved all the time. It takes a while, but as it turned out, the conservatives were in power. The client's lawyer was a very prominent fundraiser for the conservative party. In 11 and a half months, we changed we got the letters patent of the North Fraser Harbor Commission changed so it could be the diking authority. People said, you know. So once you've done that a few times, and I you know, did a lot of projects. I was, in, after a while, I started the South Shore of False Creek. I was at CMHC. The city had assembled all the land. They wanted to build a new community between the Granville Street Bridge, the Brar Street Bridge, that whole, whole area. And, uh, they wanted to do condominiums, but they wanted to keep the ownership of the land. Well, CMHC said, we can't finance condominiums on leased land. And uh, it was true. They had never financed condominiums on leased land. But the, the stupid person like me who doesn't know anything about performers or internal rates of return, I said, why can't you have a condominium on leased land? You just simply have to figure out what happens at the end of the lease. So I remember going to Ottawa with Doug Sutcliffe, who was city projects manager and other people in the city of Vancouver, and we managed to convince CMAC to finance condominiums and lease land. Now, ironically, I've lived almost long enough to see the end of those leases. <laughs> and it's a bit of a problem, but it'll get sorted out. <laughs> so my point is, Oftentimes we don't do things just because we never did them that way before. And whenever people say to me, you know, if this is such a good idea, why don't we, why hasn't it been done before? I always have a standard answer and that is just think how long it took before they started putting wheels on luggage. <laughs> That's what I wonder about this whole problem, you know, how, how much ability people like Ken Sim, new leadership in Vancouver has to implement change. I had an experience yesterday, which was so nice compared to historically getting my car repaired meant getting a loaner that was shockingly terrible. You know, I was always surprised that they would let me drive this piece of junk and that it reflected on the business, the place where I was getting my car fixed. It was terrible. Only thing worse was when on the rare occasion when they, they didn't have a loaner, then they would have some service technician drive me in a vehicle that belonged to the shop to wherever I needed to go to work or whatever. It's just so awkward. You know, they didn't really want to do it. They're busy. They're giving you a shuttle ride here and forget about getting home. It's just too weird. Um, but yesterday I was at uh, Tesla getting my car serviced and they didn't have any loaners and I was disappointed for about eight seconds until they sent me a $130 Uber credit. And I just called Uber, had a nice ride home. It gave the guy a nice tip with Tesla's money. Uh, went back, you know, at the end of the day to pick my car up, had an interesting and just, just wonderful experience doing that. And it just was one of those things where it's been done that old way so badly for so long. And then a company or group of people came along that said, well, let's just get this, the result that people need in a much, much easier, much better way. Yeah. So many of these opportunities exist in, in everything that you're talking about, but I wonder whether they're going to be able, even if someone has the idea, some of your ideas, whether they're going to be able to implement them or not. Oftentimes when you do tell people about that idea or that experience, other people say, 
Well, that's a good idea. We should do that. I've often suggested that the best way to promote a new idea is to do a demonstration project. And I was once, I had a title of director of the research and demonstration group at CMHC. And our mandate was to try out new ideas. Love that. And because it's a, quote, demonstration project, it was allowed to sometimes not have to comply with all of the rules that are more permanent or process. And indeed, uh, I've always thought if you can just do it and show somebody an on-the-ground demonstration, that's worth wonders. Now, it doesn't always work. Uh, the mayor, the men, Ron Basford used to be the federal minister responsible for housing. He was going through Revelstoke one day. The mayor said, you know, Mr. Minister, we'd love to get some new housing in Revelstoke. And Ron Basford said, Mr. Mayor, we have a program at CMHC called the Research and Demonstration Program. We will do something under, your pro, under this program. And so I and uh, a designer who I worked with, we were uh, told to come up with an idea for something in Revelstoke. And uh, we looked at the aerials and all you could see were these large lots and these wide roads. And we thought, we're going to bring more compact housing standards to Revelstoke. And we came up with some ideas, narrower road rides away, narrower lots. And uh, we went and we met uh, one July with the home builders and we showed them these and they said, you know, guys, this isn't going to work. And I could remember saying, you know, the trouble with many people like you is you're so used to doing things in a certain way. You just can't open your mind to new ideas. They said, well, no, it's not that. We just don't think this is going to work. Anyway, we built the first phase and we went to see it and it didn't work. Nobody had told us that Revelstoke had the highest snowfall in Canada. <laughs> the roads were so narrow and the lots were so, there was literally nowhere to put the snow in the middle <laughs> of the winter. We had to knock down two houses just to accommodate the snow. The snow and if you don't believe this story, go to Revelstoke <laughs> because you'll actually see a street called Basford Drive, which was part of our demonstration. Uh, at least it was called Basford Drive. If somebody's, if somebody's listening to this in Revelstoke, let me know if, if I'm wrong and the street's no longer there or I just dreamt that up. I believe that. <laughs> I believe there's, see if there's a Basford Drive in Revelstoke. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So let's talk again about the development cost charges, CACs, they're the same thing, right? It's the money asked of a developer to make an adjustment to the zoning. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Not the development cost charges. The development cost charges are often fixed fees that are uh, applied to any development. So, if so they're you, different. Even if, yeah. Community many contributions are different in that they're voluntary payments that are made in return for a rezoning. Over and above. Over and above the development. And the development cost charges can in themselves be quite substantial as well. I mean, for new pro, I'm working on a project where the DCCs are around three, four million dollars just the DCCs, then the community amenity contribution was that amount again, and, uh, and, and so forth. 
crazy. But the DCCs, development cost levies, that's fixed. And I think there's a legitimacy to it because we need to figure out how to fund growth. But what's so interesting is that many, many years ago, when we were building a lot of the subdivisions, that's not how we funded growth. We had different ways where the government would fund it and then they would collect money on property taxes. The problem I have right now is that so many people think the developers are paying these charges and therefore it just reduces their profits. And it doesn't work that way at all. Those charges are being paid for, generally speaking, by the people who buy those homes or rent those homes because those costs are generally passed on. The developer needs a certain profit margin, as you know, and people would often would say to me, look, why don't you just have a lower profit margin? You know, you, you don't need the money, Michael. I said, you know, there's some projects I'd happily take them on at a lower profit margin. But if I show the bank that it's going to cost 10 million and I can sell it for 11 million, they'll say, I'm sorry, we can't finance it. We want to see a certain profit margin, maybe 15% on your costs or more, because we need the comfort that you'll be able to pay the loan back. And that's why it may be that oftentimes developers don't make, I mean, the huge profits or the 50, even the 15%. And indeed, there's projects where developers lose money. And I can speak from personal experience. But there's also other projects where you made far more than you ever expected. But the reality is, at the end of the day, a lot of what we do, and the reason you can make such a nice living is because developers need oftentimes to pre-sell a project or a percentage of the project to prove to the bank that the project will be economically viable. When I started in the business, nobody did that. You, you had something called underwriting. A fairly intelligent person would take a look at the site and take a look at the design and say, I think this will work. You never said, oh, go out and sell half the units and then we'll believe you. And uh, the, problem, the problem with it, it's wonderful for you and your colleagues to have this pre-sale requirement, but it sure adds to the cost of the housing compared to if you just simply built the units and didn't have to build a $2 million presentation center and in the old days embark on a pretty expensive program of collateral, of brochures, advertisements in the newspaper and so forth, um, because all of that does get added onto the price. It wasn't there when I first started doing condo development. Interesting. I haven't heard that before. I mean, I haven't heard that uh, pre-selling adds to the price. Um, I mean, our commission is uh, is low based on the volume that we do and probably lower than selling them as a built product. It's not your time. commissions. It's not your commissions. It's, it's the costs which, you know, you speak, I don't know what your, you don't have to say, but I, I have seen projects where the marketing costs the presentation center, the brochures, the advertising, all of that is three and a half, four percent, four and a half percent, five percent. It's still low compared to timeshare units. You mean adding it all up. Adding up. <laughs> but when you add that, yeah. the commissions are not the issue. I have a client 
who we had to set up a pre-sale center. We leased some space in a very nice shopping mall, set it all up, built the model suite, and then the market turned and it sat there. It sat there for a year and a half, paying lease rates and having janitorial and so forth. And then eventually they were able to get going. But in the meanwhile, the marketing costs on that project were quite substantial. And uh, in the end, I told them, just don't even bother pre-selling it. Just go ahead. They said, well, we can't go ahead. I said, put in more equity. There's all, you know. So they did. They put in enough equity so that the bank would let them start, make it up. They had got a 50% loan instead of a 65 or 70 or 75% loan. And then eventually the market picked up and they're going to get out of it. But the cost of that pre-sale center paying the lease for four years now. <laughs> and of course, the lease came up because initially they thought, oh, the pre-sale will be nine months a year at the latest. Well, they had a one-year lease. They had to renew it. Can you imagine what the lease renewal terms were when you've built a presentation center <laughs> and you can't move that suite? Oh, yeah. So that's what I'm saying. And, and some of the presentation centers do become quite elaborate. And sometimes these pre-sale programs fail. <laughs> so now, as, as, as Bill Tarrant once said when he listened to a talk, and he stopped and he said, what people don't realize is one of the reasons developers have to charge a certain market is because they have to make up for the projects that failed. And it's true. It's absolutely well, true. Let's talk about that markup. What the construction lender, the big bank, given the big check for to build the project, uh, what profit margin do they want to see? You mentioned fifteen percent, fifteen to twenty normal. I would say, and and I, I I know a little bit about this, not because I'm such a sophisticated developer, but I was once retained as an expert witness on a trial, and this will be of interest to somebody. If, the issue was a developer had was in the process of assembling three lots. He assembled two. The third wanted quite a bit more money. In the end, he decided he would purchase that lot, but with a condition. The condition was it was subject to environmental certification, and it was subject to financial feasibility in his sole discretion. He went to the city... The city told them how much they wanted for their community amenity contributions, how much they wanted for DCCs, how much they wanted for engineering works. When he looked at it all, he said, you know, I don't think this is going to work. So I don't know for a fact whether he went back and tried to negotiate a reduction in the price or not. I don't know that. All I do know is he decided not to remove that subject condition and decided not to go ahead. The vendor sued him. The vendor sued him on the grounds that he should have bought it because the project would have been financially feasible and it went to trial. And I was retained as an independent witness to comment on precisely what you just asked. Is there a definition of financial feasibility in the development community? And, uh, as it turned out, the, the, the lawyer for the vendor 
uh, came forward with his expert witness who said, I've reviewed all the pro formas and they all show a profit margin between 18% and 23% on the estimated cost. And on that basis, that project would have been financially feasible. And the judge said, Mr. Gellard, do you wish to comment on this? And I said, my Lord, I used to work for NARAD Developments. For every project we did, we had four performers. One for ourselves, one show the city, one show the bank, one show our partner. I said, a performer is meaningless unless you know why it's being prepared. But the honest answer was, generally speaking, a profit margin of about 15% on the total cost of a development is considered the minimum threshold of financial feasibility. Now, some developers, uh, well-established developers, won't take on a project unless there's more because they get so many projects brought to them. Other companies, like concert properties, will do a project for a lower profit margin because they want to create work for uh, labor, uh, union laborers and so forth. And they're financially substantial enough that they can still borrow the money, even if it shows a 10% margin. So that's, that's the way it works. But the other side of it is not every project works. And I mean, there's so many things we could talk about. I did some uh, two beautiful projects in West Vancouver, and I can say in all honesty, and I shouldn't, I lost money on them. Why? Well, one of them took so long that by the time we were ready to go to market, because I didn't pre-sell them, the government had brought in a foreign buyer's tax and a vacant home tax. And you're going to say, well, did that really impact the people who were going to buy your units? No, but it impacted them to the extent that they were going to sell their homes to people who would be impacted yeah. by that. And so as a result, also, I was doing the first small condos in West Vancouver, which people uh, weren't used to. Had the projects been in Vancouver, it had been different. So, but everybody looks at these developments and says, oh, they're just lovely. And if you do Google, you'll see uh, I made the mistake of once telling Malcolm Perry, the gossip columnist for the Vancouver Sun, that I, that I was uh, desperate <laughs> to sell. He, he said, you know, yeah. He said, I said, my partner said we shouldn't really do this because we'll look like we're desperate. I said, but we are desperate. <laughs> anyway. Your volunteer effort. But. Oftentimes I have done other projects which everything went exactly as I hoped. I made, uh, I made more, even more money than I projected was projected to make. And with the exception of the two projects of West Van, I've always made money as a developer or, and usually in partnership with others too. Well, everyone should, for people listening, it, we're talking about the, the pro forma, which is the, the big spreadsheet, which forecasts all of the revenue and all of the costs, basically the income statement of the project. And there's a time element in there too. But this is done at the outset, at the beginning of a project. So this is the, the forecast really. And, uh, and when a construction lender, a big bank is going to you know, make a loan to a developer based on the pre-sales or whether they're necessary or not, but usually they are. Um, that is forecasting a profit of 15%, maybe 20, maybe 23, you mentioned. I don't think these numbers are too big. I don't know why. 
uh, we're not more comfortable talking about them with the public because I think people would assume that that's a pretty normal amount of profit. If you said a hundred, they would, they would yeah, double be, your money. Or yeah, whatever, yeah. Wouldn't think that was okay. But I think when we buy a pair of jeans or anything that you would assume that the company who's making that is, uh, going to make 10, 15, 20% based on all of their expertise they're putting into it, the risk they took, the time and all the costs of all the, everything that goes into it. I think we should be a little bit more open about it. Yeah. I, I think there is more public discussion about this. And certainly, I mean, it's a lot of projects. We have this situation where in order to determine the community amenity contribution, what the municipality has decided is that what they want is a percentage of the increase in land value resulting from the rezoning. So if I buy a piece of property that's worth $10 million, but when it's rezoned, it's worth $16 million, so it's gone up $6 million, the municipality may say, you know what? You can keep one and a half million of that lift, which is all because of us, but we would like you to give us four and a half million dollars and then we'll use it to put towards parks and other community amenities for the new residents. Now, the problem with that is the oftentimes you don't really know what the profit's going to be. And the first time I was asked to do that was for a project on 41st. And I remember asking then Councillor George Puel, Councillor Puel, if my project loses money, will the city give me 75% of the money I've lost on the project? He said, of course not. And But the point is, oftentimes developers today are required to show their financial projections to the city so the city can decide how much money they're going to give them. And the city, to its credit, says, look, we're not experts. We're going to hire a, one of a number of firms who are expert in reviewing the costs of projects to evaluate, including appraisers. So I did have a situation, and I don't mind admitting it, where I was doing a small development in West Vancouver, and I had agreed to pay a certain amount, and then I changed the design, and one of the councillors said to the director planning, this looks nicer. Is Geller going to make more money? Because if he is, we should get a portion of that. And the planner said, I don't know, sir, but we can arrange for another appraisal. And they hired Burgess Colley Sullivan, one of the best appraisal firms in the city, to do a, a evaluation. And uh, they called me and said, you know, you've done a great job with this, and, but we think, you know, the land's going to go up a million dollars, so you're going to have to give them 750000 And I said, that's lovely. <laughs> I'm not sure that I'm going to make that money, so I won't do the project. Well, they really wanted me to do the project. So I then worked with the appraiser to figure out how much we could reduce how much money I might make on the increased value of the land. And eventually we reached an agreement. Now I'm about to do the development. I go back to the same appraiser and say, now I need you to raise the value of the land so that I could get some debt. Go to, so the point is, so I can go to the bank and say, look, this land is worth much more than I told everybody else. But there's something wrong with all of this. And indeed, one of the appraisers did contact me and say, Geller, I don't know why you're speaking so critically about this process. You know, and I know, if you hire the right appraiser, you can beat the system. And I said, I know that. But I don't think that's the kind of system we should have. No, it's messed up. 
And it's so big. It's such a big industry. There's so much money involved and it's just such a big part of our society housing. And it's, I'm surprised it's, uh, it's this funky. But the one thing, if there's one message I should share for the benefit of anybody who's listening to this is if you look at a number of jurisdictions which have high real estate prices and places that come to mind are San Francisco, Boston, New York, to some degree Toronto, certainly Vancouver, they all have far more complex and difficult approval processes than if you go to Marion, Indiana, or Des Moines, Iowa, or any of those places where you can buy a beautiful house for $330,000 on a large lot in a nice subdivision. So there's, I don't think anybody who's in the planning profession or the development profession will deny there's a correlation between the difficulty and complexity of the approval process and the value of real estate or the cost of housing. And the cost and value, it's another discussion. You know, people will say to me, well, is that the cost or is that the price? Because they say the price is simply just what the market will bear. And I said, that's not entirely true. To a large degree, the price is related to the cost plus a profit margin. And I genuinely believe that. Yeah, that is definitely true. But what you're saying before about the complexity related to the market value, um, you're, as the market value increases, then the complexity increases. Certainly it's the market value that's leading and then the complexity comes with the municipalities and everybody's trying to get their share, right? When it gets harder and harder to get approval to build something. Oh, so it's both. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember people saying to me when I built this little duplexes and coach houses in West Vancouver, they said, I can't believe how much you're selling them for. And I said, well, to tell you the truth, I had planned to sell them for such a high price, but my realtor said she could get it. And the reason she could get it is this is the only project of its kind in all of West Vancouver. <laughs> I said, as soon as there's a lot more, that'll be different. And that's, I think, an important message. Yes, people will, developers will sell for what the market will bear. But as the amount of competition increases, I do believe prices come down. It's just the same conversation we're having about lettuce and soup and products at the supermarkets. As long as there's not a lot of competition, people say there is, but there isn't. That's one of the reasons. Cellular service. Our cell phones are expensive. If Orange and all of those European cellular companies that charge you $30 a month, not $110 or $20 a month were allowed to operate here, our cellular service bills would come down. And I think, in a way, there's a direct analogy with real estate. Yeah, there is. I mean, because it, it's so government-involved, right? The CRTC, all those, whatever the regulating body, bodies are for the cellular communications industry. Um, I don't know if it's corrupt, but there's so much control, so much anti-competition. No, I won't say it's corrupt. Although there's no doubt that the governments do control supply and demand and so forth. But we have created a problem now that's going to be very difficult to solve 
because if you look at the cost of, say, new rental, and a lot of the people who are listening to us, they don't own yet, they hope to buy, but they're currently renting. One of the problems we have is that the cost of creating new rental housing is so high that the rents are high. And then some people will say, well, that's the trouble because of the land costs. I said, no, even if there's no land cost, if you just simply take the construction cost, the financing at inch current rates, the architects, the development cost charges, potentially the community amenity, even if the land cost is zero, rents are still gonna be 3,000 a month for a two bedroom apartment. And if you bring the land in, then it becomes 4,000. But the point is 3,000 a month for 850 square foot apartment is a lot of money. And, uh, and it's because, and I've been trying to explain this to people now. So the, the, there's, I've been critical of things like the Broadway plan because it's promoting a lot of very high-rise, high-density. And by density, I mean it's not just whether it's 23 floors or 18 floors. I, I often say, and I don't want people to get upset, you know, when you look at the size of a development, think of a person. Like, I'm six foot tall, but I'm 195 pounds. I look differently than someone who's six foot tall who's 138 pounds or someone who's five foot tall and 220 pounds. So when you look about what a development might look like, you have to, yes, look at its height, but you have to look at its density, its floor space ratio. That in a way is a bit like its weight. And it's the combination of the two. So the concern I have with the Broadway plan and some of these other plans is that the city is either promoting or allowing developments that are dramatically larger than their current surroundings. And some people will say, well, of course, those surroundings were built years ago. But my point is, you could keep making it six times the size of the lot or eight times the size. That isn't going to dramatically impact the rents anymore. It's the, because there's so many other factors like just the cost of construction. If we could figure out how to get the cost of construction to come down significantly, that would really help. Or if we can get interest rates back down to one and two or 3%, that would really help. But right now, making these really, really big buildings, which upset everybody, including me, um, isn't really gonna create the level of affordability. And in fact, I would argue that the true level of affordability that we need for people earning 30,000 a year, not 80 or 140,000, but 30,000 or less, you really can only do that now with significant government subsidy. So on the way down here, I had a call from a reporter because he read a tweet that I said we should cancel the homeowner grant program. Some of you who own homes know that if it's below a certain price threshold, which happens to be about $2.1 million right now, you get a grant. And I don't know whether it's for five or $600 or something like that. And my problem with it is twofold, well, threefold. One, the limit, the price limit, which allows you to qualify is the same whether you're on the west side of Vancouver or Chetwind. Well, a $2.1 million house in Chetwind or Lillooet 
may well be the nicest house in town, and yet we're giving a grant to that person. Similarly, we don't income test that person. So I, I say we should cancel it. We don't need, if we're going to give help, let's give help to people who really need it. So he said to me, well, do you think property taxes should come down? I said, no, I'd rather see that money which is not an insignificant amount. I think he said $900 million. I'd rather see that go to subsidize more units for people who are in the greatest need. To me, it seems so obvious. But that's you could say, well, that's because I don't get a homeowner grant. <laughs> so what do I care? No, it's, it's to do with justice in a way. And I think it's unjust to be continuing this. Similarly, giving $40 to a renter isn't going to help them very much either. But I worked at CMHC when there was a lot of government money to build a lot of projects, and they did a lot of good. And we need to bring that era back. That's, you say just cater to the $30,000 a year crowd? Or, I mean, what does a barista working at Starbucks earn? I mean, minimum wage right now. I can't believe people are fighting over minimum wage, like whether it's $15 or six. The people I hear speaking out about that are earning $350 an hour. <laughs> and they're arguing whether somebody should earn $15 or $18. And people say to me, oh, you can't relate to any of this. And it's true. In some respects, I can't relate to it. But in others, I do. Because I mentioned to you, I have a daughter and three. I have two daughters. One's a doctor. She hangs out in certain circles. The other is the only girl of her social circle who owns a house. And the only reason she owns a house is because I helped her buy a house. And she's what, the only one who drives a car, who owns a car. So she hangs out with a lot of people who regularly, uh, you, well, not so much now, but regularly came to our house and I listened to them and, you know, and they're just, dreaming of getting a basement suite that of their own you know so i i can relate to the problems that a lot of people have and i really do think we need to do more you know for them and uh it is challenging i i keep seeing uh newspaper articles that i'm quoted in in which i say affordable housing is within reach well it's certainly getting more and more difficult but there's always been a a concern about, about affordable housing in Vancouver. I first came here in 74. There was a real concern about the cost of housing here in 1974. Now, it was much more acute today than it was then, but there have always been problems. And ultimately, I do think government has to play a, a bigger role. I mean, we can do certain things. There's something called inclusionary zoning. I don't know if you've ever talked about that with any of your guests. Inclusionary zoning is an interesting idea. What it says, start in New York, Mr. Developer, you want to build 100 condos? You can. But we want you to build 20 low-income rental units as part of your development. And you, we won't give you approval for the condos unless you build the low-rent low units. Now, one of the issues in New York was the entrance to the condos was on Park Avenue, and the entrance to the rental units was off the lane beside the garbage bins or something. The poor door. And people said the poor door. And people tried to argue we should never do that. Now, it's not entirely true here, but the, my point is it's a very good idea in many respects. The only thing is it's increasing the cost of the condos for the 100 people who are buying the condos. 
So most people don't really think of that. And I only think of it because I know I do these projects and been involved with them. But the other side of the coin is when the price of condos comes down to a certain point, then everything stops. Now you say, oh, you're making this up. No, I'm not making it up. Look at Portland, look at San Francisco, where these inclusionary zoning policies were brought in long before they were brought in in Vancouver. At a certain point, if the numbers don't work, people stop. Well, didn't they do that in Gastown, in the, in the lower downtown east side? 30%, I think, was the number, and it, and it pretty much killed yeah. all the projects that yeah. were so pro- planned at the time. projects have stopped. I mean, one of the good, I mean, there are some benefits. The Woodward's development was an example of inclusionary zoning that I think worked. It did work, although those condo units still, I mean, they came to market, they were a bit higher than they would have been, but through some brilliance on the part of the developer and the way it was marketed, you know, uh, that that turned into a very successful project. The irony is a lot of the downtown Eastside activists were actually now opposed to the Woodward's project. I, I, I played a role in the Woodward's project, so I'm quite proud of the fact that it happened. Believe it or not, I, I don't normally admit this publicly, but we're in a nice, relaxed environment. I helped the Woodward's project get started. And I helped it get started because I personally opposed mixing low-income family housing with some market condos at the Bayshore project. Now, I didn't do it because I was cruel. I did it because as a guy who grew up in a fairly affluent neighborhood but wasn't the wealthiest kid in the block, I know that being really poor in an area which is very, very affluent can be challenging. The other thing was there was no infrastructure. I mean, at Bayshore, there was nowhere to go and buy groceries. <laughs> what are you going to do? Go to the tuck shop in the Western Hotel to buy? So I actually was able to convince the left-leaning council of the day that while it was appropriate to have seniors living within the development because there was a different set of needs, there was no school for the kids and so forth. But rather than build the low-income family housing, I worked out with Jim Green, who was very much trying to get Woodward's going, a cash payment, I think it was about $2.5 million to help seed the Woodward's project. And so if you go to Bayshore, there's a very innovative seniors project developed again with an innovation called a life lease, a very clever financial model that's never been duplicated in British Columbia, but should be. But the Woodward's project eventually got going and I'm proud of that. Now I got a lot of trouble for suggesting that really, really low-income people shouldn't be living with really, really rich people. And uh, Jim Green and others took me to town. But I do believe that. But that being said, I do believe that mixing communities is very desirable. And the irony is that whenever I say that and point to the downtown east side and say we should be building condominiums down here to get a broader socio-income mix, 
a number of politicians, a number of community activists, they want to run me out of town because they say, we mustn't allow condos down here. And to my mind, that's a huge problem in, in this neighborhood. We, we're going to continue to have vacant storefronts if there isn't any purchasing power. And yeah, we can get some nice furniture shops and a few nice restaurants, and there are. But you need a broader mix. And I can tell I'm just starting to ramble and ramble and oh, ramble no, on here. So <laughs> you're, the pro, you're pro mixing, but within reason, not when within there's a reason. huge disparity. And I made a mistake of once suggesting that if you looked at the different quintiles, that people who are in the first quintile can live with people in the second and the third quintile. But if you people in the lowest quintile with the highest quintile, that's a mistake. And I, I didn't present it quite as eloquently as that. And uh, Fran, I was discussing actually with Frances Pula, and she was the one who, who quoted me in the Globe and Mail and started a real furor. But at least it led to a discussion about, you know, what works and what doesn't work. The irony is the South Shore Falls Creek, for which I was the project manager for CMAC, was one-third low income, one-third middle, and one-third high income. And that actually was social engineering that worked. And indeed, I believe that the kids, the low-income kids who grew up in that neighborhood, generally speaking, are much better off than those low-income kids who grew up 40 years ago in Raymer Place in an exclusively low-income uh, project. And project is the term we use. So In Burnaby, there's a lot of rental at a 20% discount as part of new projects. And, and it seems like a, it's a little bit scary for buyers until you share with the condo buyer, you know, what the rents are and what 20% off yeah. that still is. And it's such a substantial number and, and the income required to pay that rent and what those, who those people probably are and what they do for a living. It, it all of a sudden becomes not such a big deal. But one of the things that I, and this gets into your area of uh, activity, I often tell people, a lot of people say, oh, we just, people are opposing these developments because they don't want renters in the building or renters living nearby. And I said, look, let's get real now. The only difference between somebody who's renting or somebody who's buying one of your condos is oftentimes whether their father or mother's there to give them $400,000 towards the down payment. They're the same people. They just have different parents. And they have the same jobs. Totally. They work beside each other at the same high-tech companies. But that said, I do believe that buildings with a high concentration of drug-addicted and mentally ill people, that can have a negative impact on a neighborhood. And But the answer isn't that you don't allow them to live in nice neighborhoods. You just simply don't have projects of 120 you maybe have a project of 12, or you have a, a greater, more finely grained solution. And, Tough one. And, and, and then it can work. Another one of your ideas, number six, is simplify rezoning regulations, because they're different, even within cities, or just there's no, no need for it, right? Yeah, or, I mean, I actually challenge some of the planners at the city of Vancouver to actually explain to me exactly what the regulations are within the RT2 versus the RT3 versus the R34 versus the R35 R versus R25. 
an R25N, an R, and in some of those zones, you have to have a, one setback, and in other zones, you have a different setback. In the multifamily zones, I work with a company called Lumen, and you may have come across it. They, I think it's a fabulous product, and there's other companies that make it, but it allows your balcony to become like a convertible. You can open the close that. So I've been it's studying. Glass enclosures it's gla they're know. glass panels that are completely retractable. It's like the top in a convertible car. It's cool. And it's really cool. And the advantage is it makes a balcony usable year round. So I've been studying balcony standards in Vancouver. There are some zones where the balcony area can be 8% of the building and 50% of the balconies can be enclosed. There's other zones where it can be 8% of the building, but none of it can be enclosed. There's other zones where the balconies can be 12% of the area of the building. And there are some zones where there's no limit on the size of the balconies. So my question is, why? Why limit the size of balconies? Why either limit them, or if you want to limit them, and the reason for limiting them might be that they do add to the apparent bulk of a building, you know, depending on how they're designed and are the railings solid or are they glass? So yes, they can, depending on how they're designed, whether they stick out or whether they're inset and so forth. But having all of these variations and so many zones and it does complicate things. So I see submissions go in and they say, oh, I'm awfully sorry. You've got 12% balconies on this building. This zone only allows eight. Oh, they said, well, you had allowed me 12 in my last project. Yes, but that wasn't in the four end zone. That was in the four zone. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds ridiculous. So I'm saying let's simplify it. And the reason why we, it got so complicated is because year after year after year, we'd introduce something new and it would get more and more more and more complicated. There are, there are, by the way, completely different approaches to zoning that are used in some places. One, one of the ideas that I kind of like is called dynamic zoning, where essentially the zone, what you're allowed to build on a property is somewhat related to what's already built around it. <laughs> so you're allowed, you know, imagine a zone that says you can make, every building is allowed to be 50% bigger than the one next door, period. That's it. That's the only regulation. <laughs> and, you know, uh, now people say, don't be silly. And yes, it's silly. But my point is, is that any sillier than the rules that we have right now? Or is that any sillier than saying if a particular developer with a particular architect comes into City Hall, together they can get approval for something that another architect working with another developer could never get. And People who understand what goes on know that's exactly what happens. Now, you may well say, well, just a second, Geller. Is it any different if I can hire Greenspan as my lawyer, there's a greater chance that I'll get off than if I hire Cohen as a lawyer? And yes, there's some truth to that too. So all I would say is, let's rather than accept it, let's just change the system, both whether it's to do with lawyers or to do with developers to try and make it all a bit more equitable. You have so many ideas. I mean, it's obviously limitless. We could probably sit here for six hours. Oh, well. But I say we say we implemented the best of them. Yeah, all of them. Waved a magic wand. It's done. 
what effect would that have? The, a fixed right. system. What effect would that have for the for the regular okay. people? So right now, if I want to do a rezoning in a lot of places, I have to realistically anticipate that it'll take two years, possibly three years, from the time I buy the land to the time I actually get my zoning approval or my development permit approval. Now, let's say the land costs $10 million and the interest rate is 7% or 6%. Just get out your calculators and figure out what 6% is on $10 million times three. And when you add that in, and it's compounding, of course, that is the additional cost just for starters. But the point is, if that could be approved in eight months instead of three years, just those carrying costs are going to be- Just that. Yeah. The other thing is profit margins are often, again, tied to certainty or uncertainty. So the more certain you can show someone that the project is going to get approved and it's going to get approved, that also starts to bring down the cost. If within the, the reason it takes three years is in part because the architect has had to change the drawings four different times. And each time he changes those drawings, he sends a bill to the developer because during rezoning, most architects would never quote a fixed fee because it's so uncertain. So everything's being done at $200 an hour or $140 an hour and $300 an hour, depending what the charge out rates are. So all of these costs. Now you say, well, all right, so the architect costs more, the interest costs. Well, what else? Well, there's property taxes during those three years. There's insurance during those three years. So it all begins to add up. And there's the people working on the project and the, from the developer's team. That's right. So the point is, and again, it doesn't just reduce the profit margin for the developer. I mean, it may, in the end of the day, he may lose money or may not make as much. But I think the key thing is level of certainty and uncertainty. And what I'm just trying to do is argue for a process and procedures that reduce some of the uncertainty. And by that, I mean, zone the land, let people know what they can build. And just because I happen to be a very fancy developer with a fancy architect, don't let me come in and now change all the rules. Now, I often do talk this way, and I'll never forget one of my very good friends and top competitors who said to me, I don't know why you're speaking out about trying to simplify the approval process. The reason you could afford your first Jaguar is because people needed to hire people like you <laughs> to get them through the approval process. And there's truth to that. I've benefited immensely because we started off talking about the fact that I started as an architect. I worked for the government. I can see things differently than a lot of other developers see them. And maybe that's why, with only two exceptions, I've got every project I've ever worked on approved. Sometimes they take longer than I ever expected. But with two exceptions, every project I've worked on has been approved. But the costs have oftentimes increased 
for the end users. And that's why I think we should have a conversation about it. And if people want to have a conversation with you about it or have some ideas they want to send your way, how do they get in touch with you? Well, I have a very simple email address. I'm geller at sfu.ca because I still have those adjunct. Mind you, if any of my colleagues at SFU are listening to this, <laughs> it's pretty easy to say, you know, Mike, I think it's time we brought on some new adjunct professors. <laughs> um, I have a blog and I try and write about all these things. And, and again, it's, uh, I enjoy sharing ideas. Um, What's your website? michaelgeller.ca. And Twitter? At Michael Geller. I'm quite self-centered. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been fun. We got to do it again. I know you've got more to talk about. No, no. Well, thank you. I just pray to God that you can edit this into something that's slightly coherent. <laughs> well, we're going to get this down to 15, 20 minutes. That'd be no great. Well, that's all it should be. That's all it should be. <laughs> Thanks, man. 